What you heard in Chapter 1 was an exclusive listen to the heart-wrenching suicide letter of one talented but troubled young man, Chris Hodges. After months of sensitive negotiations with his family, I, Jim Stormy Weathers, have been chosen as the sole reporter to tell the story of a teenager who had tremendous potential and a tremendous capacity to destroy that potential. The letter you have just heard would appear to paint the portrait of a loser, a so-called Generation X slacker who couldn't cope with the complexities and drama of living life on the brink of the millennium. It would appear to portray a youth whose family was abusive, whose friends were lost, and whose only hope for love was a dismissive young woman. It would appear to be a vision of despair, loneliness, unrequited love, and agonizing pain. All that would be the case if even one word of the letter you just heard was true. Chris Hodges, first and foremost, had an incredibly vivid imagination. He often wrote poetry and fiction in his spare time. That is, when he wasn't reading the same or watching the numerous dark and disturbing movies he loved to watch. He was extremely well-read and well-watched for someone so young. All this combined to make him not only intelligent, but gave him the fuel for an imagination rarely reached but by the likes of Stephen King and Dean R. Kuntz. Chris's so-called suicide novel was in fact a suicide letter, not a novel. The words in the letter and the story it told were completely fictional. They were figments of Chris's overactive imagination. Told as it was, the letter made for compelling fiction. And the ending, at least, had a strong basis in reality. Chris did commit suicide shortly after completing the letter. When it was found, drops of his blood were still fresh on the paper. A solemn reminder that, while the story Chris told might not have been true, there were still very deep problems in his life. Problems that he felt he could only solve by taking his own life. His family and friends, as I will reveal to you later, were aware that Chris was a troubled soul. They had no idea, however, that things were as bad as they really were. They had no idea Chris was planning to commit suicide and were in complete shock upon finding out that he did so. Chris was good at hiding things, as you will soon learn, and his suicidal feelings were one of his many secrets, some of which went with Chris to the grave. But why would a young man create such a tale of woe? Why would he condemn his parents, his friends, his lover? Why would he create a fantasy world that had few comparisons to his real life? Why would he leave such a tale as his last will and testament? Why would he? What really happened to Chris Hodges that he would feel the need to write the story he did? What really happened to Chris Hodges that he couldn't go on living life? What really happened to Chris Hodges that he wasted all his talent and promise on a cliched ending? That's what I aim to find out when I began this podcast. And I believe that I alone have discovered the reasons for Chris's suicide. The reasons for his slander of his family and friends and the disparagement of his life are harder to get at. And in truth, only Chris and God know for sure. But I feel that I, after hours upon hours of interviews and study of the life and times of Chris Hodges, have discovered many of the demons haunting the gifted young man. In time, I will reveal these secrets to you, the listener, and maybe they will help you understand what happened in and to the life of this teenager. 
and maybe this discussion can help ease the pain and frustration felt by his family and friends. Give them closure. And maybe Chris's story can help prevent similar tragedies from occurring in the future. That was my only hope and humble reason for beginning this work. But first, let us examine the suicide note left by Chris Hodges and examine the falsehoods and untruths contained therein. Only by deconstructing and destroying the myths Chris created can we understand the reality behind the lies. First, let me recant something I said a little earlier. There are a number of things in Chris Hodges' suicide note that are true. It's not that I'm a liar. As an investigative reporter, lying is the last thing I like to do. And what I've said isn't completely untrue. The overall tone and major points in the note are false, and the few points that are factual in nature have very little to do with Chris's suicide or the truth of the story he told. As I am not perfect, I am prone to exaggeration upon occasion. However, Chris did make numerous false claims in his letter. He outright lied and fabricated many of the elements of his story that he claimed therein. He invented a story that would explain his decision for committing suicide, but that story has little or no basis in the real world, and since you, the listener, have already heard Chris's story, I would like, at this point, to point out each of the lies and fabrications found in the now infamous novel with the help of one of Chris's fellow students, Audrey Palmer. I talked to Audrey while she was on break at her job as a waitress at Tchotchkes. Thank you for joining me today, Audrey. Thank you for having me. Why don't you tell everyone who you are? My name is Audrey Palmer, and I'm a student at West Texas State University. Go Buffaloes! Woo! And before that? I, uh... Did you go to Leon High School? Uh, yeah, but I had to get out of there. Because of Chris Hodges? Yeah. Did you read Chris's suicide novel? Yeah, everybody did. How? Well, a friend of mine, her father works at the sheriff's department. She got a copy and shared it with everyone. What did you think of it? It's... It's... It's terrible. I don't really know Chris's mom and dad, but I know a lot of the other people in there, and he's... Well, I don't want to talk bad about the dead. It's okay. You aren't talking about Chris. You're talking about the novel. But it's not a novel. I don't know why he said that. In the beginning, Chris states the fact that he wants to write a suicide novel in his attempt to be original. But he didn't do it. It's only a few pages long. Chris liked to say things that entertained him, I think. Things that weren't true. So you think he may have, however, been alluding to the fact that the story is highly fictionalized? Whatever the truth, we shall never know. Yeah. According to police reports that I was able to obtain from a connection inside the police department, Nirvana's Nevermind cassette was indeed found inside Chris's cassette player, which sat next to the typewriter he used to write the note. Nirvana, Kurt Cobain, and Kurt's suicide appeared to be topics of fascination with Chris. He owned the entire collection of Nirvana's American releases and more than a dozen bootleg and import copies of Nirvana material. You will also find several references to Kurt Cobain in Chris's poetry, which I will point out specifically for you in a later episode of this podcast. The police files that I obtained also showed that Chris never called Tracy's house that day. As you will soon find out, Tracy loved Chris and would have definitely returned his call, especially if he would have mentioned anything about suicide. Contrary to Chris's wishes, his parents were the persons to find his suicide note and his dead body. 
It must have been a tragic moment indeed for the Hodges, especially upon reading the note that he left behind. In later interviews with Robert and Mary Hodges, they claim not to understand any of the things they read in the note. Both have always been considered by family and friends to be upstanding and law-abiding citizens who couldn't have possibly committed the acts contained in the note. Teachers at Leon High School, where both Chris and his brother Robert Jr. attended school, characterize Robert and Mary Hodges as model parents. These claims are substantiated by the fact that they immediately turned the note over to detectives upon the police's arrival at the Hodges' residence. That didn't stop the police detectives, John Frazier and Mike Noonan, from checking out the recently deceased story anyway. A search of the closet referred to in the note revealed no removable panel and no drugs. A search of Mary Hodges' purse also came up empty. If Robert and Mary Hodges were inclined to sue, like so many modern Americans, they would have had one heck of a suit against Frazier and Noonan for acting without a search warrant. Nothing ever came of it, though. The Hodges had other, more important things on their minds. Another real-life event that came to pass against Chris's wishes was that Henry Thomas did, in fact, star in the Chris Hodges story, which originally aired on NBC and was later rerun on Lifetime. Also starring were Kelly Martin as Tracy Reed and Wilson Cruz as Tim. On the first run, it easily won its time slot, beating out the Monica Lewinsky story and John Wayne and Lorena Bobbitt together again. Once Chris started talking about himself, he painted a portrait that was radically different from his true self. While he did correctly state his name, age, and year in school, the rest of his self-description was incorrect. To learn more about Chris's life as an athlete, I spoke to his coach, Michael Lynch. Thank you for joining me, Coach Lynch. Yeah, pretty shit, crappy circumstances. Why don't you tell the people a bit about who you are? I am Mike Lynch, and I am head coach of the Leon High School football team in Tallahassee, Florida. In my time here, I have won six 4A state titles. Six? I thought it was five. Six current championships. Nice ring. As my dad always said, nice rings bring nice things. And did Chris Hodges help you get all those nice rings? Chris? Chris was the most gifted field general I've ever seen. Hell, by senior year, I had him calling his own place. And not just the JV squad stuff either. He had the green light that year. So you liked Chris? Liked him? He was like a son to me. I love that kid. So I have to ask, did you read Chris's suicide note? I'm deeply sad to say that I did. What did you think about it? I just don't understand it. Outstanding young man like that, good ball player, bright future, lots of trophies in his future, and here he is just making sh crap up. Like what? In the letter, he listed himself as standing 5'8 and weighing 140 pounds. In real life, Chris hadn't been that small since he was in 8th grade and he was playing the peewees. Yes, uh, my notes say that at the time of his death, Chris was 6'2 and weighed 205 pounds. He was bulking up to play college ball. He was working hard. He was doing a hell of a job. Hell of a job. It appears that Chris also grossly misrepresented his athletic prowess. A lot! For one thing, he mentioned that Brad Dexter was Leon's quarterback for three state championship teams. Brad played receiver. Chris was my QB. Hell, he earned 45 school and 13 state passing records during his last three years for us. Hell of a kid. Hell of a player. But his letter said... I'm not done. There's more. Sorry. Go on. Chris was also a superb baseball player. Last season, he had a 17-3 record as a pitcher. He batted 455 to lead Leon to the state finals for the second time in two years for Coach Galt. Leon won the state championship in baseball. Hell, Chris was drafted in the 13th round by the Mets. He turned down a $100,000 deal to play pro ball. He wanted to go to college. By my last count, 
42 different colleges had offered him full scholarships to come be a two-sport star for them. Chris obviously had a bright future based on his athletics, but his academics were nearly as good. I spoke with the school's registrar, a Miss Judy Foster. Welcome to my podcast, Miss Foster. Thank you. Can you tell the listeners who you are? I am Miss Judy Foster. I have been the registrar at Leon High School for 13 years. And what do you like to do for fun? I work. For fun? I work. Tell me about Chris as a student. Chris was a superb student. During his four years at our school, Chris missed the honor roll once. After the boys won their first football championship, Chris let his studies slip a little bit in his celebratory glee. However, he was quickly back to the top of his form academically, ranking in the top 10 student GPAs in his class. He got a 1420 on the SAT and a 30 on the ACT. Were there ever any complaints about Chris as a student? Never. Chris Hodges had a combination of athletic and academic prowess that combined with his all-American good looks made him the most popular guy in school, by all accounts. The students all said that everyone looked up to him. Every student organization on campus wanted him as a member, and all the teachers loved him, even those whose classes he wasn't in. Despite his protestations to the contrary, Chris had a reputation as anything but a quitter. He was known as the most determined and driven guy in school. So much so that he was voted most likely to succeed by his classmates. Chris stayed in Boy Scouts long enough to become an Eagle Scout. He was never in the school band, but as for the school newspaper, Chris was the features editor during his senior year. He loved to write stories about other students, teachers, and employees of the school. He was excellent at letting people see the human side of his subjects, which ranged from Brad Dexter to the school janitor Marty McDonald to Connie Wahlberg, the teacher of the year during his senior year. But I'd like to go back to Chris's suicide note. I asked Audrey Palmer a question. Probably the strangest portion of the suicide note in light of the true facts is Chris's account of his relationship with Tracy Reed. What was the real story there? Tracy and Chris were together, had been since sophomore year. Together, like, dating? Totally. What about Brad Dexter? Brad? Never. Brad was dating Shirley Muldoon for like eight years. They got engaged right after graduation. Honeymooned in Cabo. So Chris and Tracy were an item. Obviously, they got senior superlative for most popular couple. Chris was also most athletic and Tracy was most likely to succeed. How did they meet? They had classes together at Fairview. Fairview? Some crappy little middle school. I went to Griffin. After some serious investigation, I discovered that Tracy had been in love with Chris since they had been in a class together at Fairview. It was actually the only class the two ever took together, they never had a single high school class with each other, contrary to Chris's claims. In fact, Tracy had actually been the one to ask Chris out. Once they started dating, it took death to tear the two apart. Chris's dream of taking Tracy to the beach was more than just a dream. The event actually happened, according to Audrey. She wouldn't reveal the intimate details of the evening, but suffice it to say, Chris wasn't dreaming that portion of the suicide letter. The super sport in question had been a present to Chris after his first state championship in football from his uncle Chris, for whom he had been named. The car became Chris's prized possession, and he loved being seen driving Tracy around in it. Like most high school athletes, he was somewhat vain when he wanted to be. As for Tim Holton, Chris's best friend, he never committed suicide. In fact, he's still alive and well, 
Tim helped me repeatedly throughout the preparation of my biography of Chris. The real Chris, not the Chris of the suicide letter. Thank you for joining me, Tim. Yeah. It seems that the things that Chris wrote about you in his suicide note were less than factual. Well, less than fa- Okay. Everything in the note, first of all, is bullshit. All of it is not true. None of it was true? Not one word. What really happened? Well, what really happened, what do you mean? Like, in real life? Because the letter is complete bullshit. All of it is false. I, I, I can't tell you what really happened. I mean, it's not like I could say, this is what happened in the letter, but, but actually, in real life, it was like this. Nothing has any, any relation to real life. Um, I, I can't tell you what really happened. I, I don't know. Just tell me what you can. Talk about the specific details of the letter. Do I have to? Only if you want to. But the listeners are dying to hear what you have to say. There are things that only you know. Uh, Okay. Thank you, Tim. Please, go ahead. Well, everything everything in the letter is fiction. Um, It's uh, the the way we met is a lie. Um, With Richie and Joey, uh, they were bullies in in seventh grade, and, and they were picking on me. Um, they were never picking on Chris. Chris was Chris was bigger than either of them. Um, Chris actually came to my rescue uh, for the first time from from those guys in seventh grade, um, and then a lot of other times over the years. He he provided me a lot of protection, and I and I needed that. Um, I was why well, I am gay. I always knew. Um, Chris wouldn't talk about it. I, I wasn't open, but I tried to tell him more than once. It wasn't really a secret. It seemed like everybody but Chris could see through could see through the the, the disguise, I guess. So Richie and Joey were bullies. You know, it's it's a time. It's still a time, but but you know how. Well, especially at that time and place, young men in America are are, are supposed to be men. You know, there's a line you don't cross, and and especially in the context of of all things football, um, there wasn't any room or any place for a guy like me. Richie Abrams and Joey Parker, that's, that's sort of half true. They were bullies. Um, Joey didn't bother me again after, after the one time that Chris stood up for me in the seventh grade, and that was when Chris and I became friends. Um, Richie, Richie stayed the same, but he and Joey and Chris all wound up being good friends by the time they started high school, and three years in a row they played together on the state championship team. Chris was the quarterback, as I know you've said already, um, not, not fucking Brad Dexter. Well, that seems like a pretty big fiction. Sure, yeah, it's all fiction. It's all a lie. The worst lie really is about his family and mine. For the record, my parents are not alcoholics. They have never been abusive. And I don't even have a brother. Bob is Chris's brother. And Chris's parents were none of those things either. It's completely made up. It's like they it's 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 like the the author of the letter if it was Chris took a story about somebody else and put his name on it. There's nothing true about it at all. After months and months of debate, rumor, and innuendo, it has become generally agreed upon that Tim finally did come out, as it is commonly called, to Chris by admitting that he was gay. According to my research, the time period that Tim came out was the same time period in which Chris claimed that Tim committed suicide. And after the admission, Tim and Chris grew apart and stopped being friends. So, in Chris's mind, it seems... He equated Tim's declaration of gayness with Tim killing himself. 
Chris couldn't accept that his best friend was a homosexual, so in his mind, he created the fantasy that his best friend had died by his own hand. This fiction he put in his suicide letter. Chris's final, and probably his worst fictions in the entire letter, are those about his own family. As I've already stated, all of the Hodges family and friends paint a picture of them as the perfect parents. They were loving and were able to provide for all of Chris and Robert Jr.'s needs and quite a few of their wants. Chris, however, chose them as the brunt of most of his pent-up hostility. Why? We may never be sure. But we can be sure that the things Chris said about his parents were untrue. His aunt, Norma Hodges, explained the best she could. I don't know what was going through Chris's mind. His parents were never habitual drug users. They've never spent any time in prison. Neither one of them has ever been arrested, for gosh sakes. Both Senior and Mary are high school and college graduates who were born and lived their whole lives in the state of Florida. Robert went to Leon High with future professional baseball player Gordon Chambers. I always liked him. Senior, which is what Norma affectionately calls Robert, never worked in construction, it turns out. And Mary never spent any time as a nurse or in nursing school. No one in their family ever lived in a mobile home or a housing project. And they were never on welfare. Hospital records show that Chris never went to the hospital for burns he obtained from a burning sweater or anything else. The only time Chris ever spent in a hospital was for physical exams so he could play football. Both of Mary's pregnancies were planned. They had been trying quite a while before Mary was finally pregnant with Chris. Mary and Senior never thought of their children as anything other than a blessing. Chris was certainly never a burden. As it turns out, the rest of both Mary and Robert Sr.'s families loved them and they loved Chris and his brother. By all accounts, the family got along fine, including constant interaction and contact. Finally, turning back to Chris's claims, it turns out that the gun Chris used to kill himself wasn't his father's. Robert Hodges never owned a gun in his life. In fact, even prior to his son's suicide, Robert was a member of Handgun Control Incorporated and would have never allowed a gun in his house. The gun in question, it turns out, had belonged to the elder Chris Hodges, Robert's brother and the uncle of the deceased. Apparently, the gun had been left in the Supersport by accident and the younger Chris found it and put it to use. There you have it. The truth behind the suicide note of Chris Hodges. And like you, I am left confused and with a virtual plethora of questions running around in my head. Why did Chris do it? Why did he write such a strange letter? Why did he lie about his reasons for killing himself? Why did he betray his family, his friends, and his lover? Some of these questions, it turns out, definitely have answers. Others we may never know. The key to all of the mysteries seems to revolve around the date of March 15, 1994. Prior to that date, Chris had been known as a happy-go-lucky kind of guy who enjoyed life and lived it to the fullest. I talked to the officer in charge of the Hodges case. Can you tell us your name and occupation? My name is Mike Nonan, and I'm a deputy with the Leon County Sheriff's Department. Thank you for joining us. Can you tell us the basic details about Chris Hodges' first disappearance? Sure. On the night of Sunday, March 15th, Chris Hodges, a 17-year-old male, went to a movie by himself at approximately 7 p.m. He wasn't seen again for two days. On Monday morning, his parents reported that he was missing, and I started my investigation with my partner, John Frazier. 
On Tuesday, March 17th, Hodges showed up at school as usual, acting like nothing was out of the ordinary. After questioning by myself and my partner, his parents, and school officials, Hodges was unable to account for his whereabouts and had no memory of anything that occurred during the missing 36 hours. Further questioning by his parents, myself, and my partner, and school officials turned up no further evidence. Hodges passed drug and alcohol tests, and the doctors who examined him found nothing out of the ordinary. Afterwards, the strange disappearance was largely forgotten, except that it didn't seem to be forgotten by Chris. As I said before, he was a happy and active young man prior to March 15th. Afterward, he was more morose, quiet, and withdrawn, according to friends and family. He dove into athletics and his studies like never before. He became a demanding perfectionist, often becoming angry with others who failed to live up to his standards. He was never violent, though, and most people still liked Chris and enjoyed spending time with him. But he wasn't the same person after March 15th, and he would never recover. What happened during those 36 hours that we will never know? That is a question that only Chris knows the answer to, and he won't be talking anytime soon. Whatever it was, however, changed the life of a talented young man and the family, friends, and community that loved him. I am Jim, Stormy Weathers, and you have been listening to the second chapter of All-American, A True Crime Podcast. Starring Your name as your character's name. Safira as Aunt Norma Hodges. Kamal Aqui as Mike Noonan. Michael Nasser as Coach Michael Lynch. Carrie Fs as Audrey Palmer. Kevin Shellhase as Tim Holton. Samara Mizrahi as the voice of Carrie Fs in the credits. Kenneth Quinnell as the voice of Michael Nasser in the credits. Kenneth Quinnell as the voice of Kevin Shellhase in the credits. Samara Mizrahi as Registrar Judy Foster and as co-director. And Kenneth Quinnell as writer, director, and the character of Jim Stormy Weathers. <laughs>